0: Lecture 12, The Neural Basis of Implicit Learning. In this lecture, I'd like to discuss the neural mechanisms underlying implicit learning. How is simple non-associative learning, like habituation and sensitization, actually implemented at a neural level? How does the brain change during classical and instrumental conditioning? Now if you think about our discussion of the neural mechanisms of explicit learning, you may remember that a lot of the early insights came from studying a particular patient named Henry Malayason, who suffered from a profound amnesia following brain surgery. Well, in the case of implicit memory, a lot of the early insights came from studying a snail. Yes, a snail. Specifically, a sea snail, or more precisely, a sea hare, called Aplesia californica. You see, one of the challenges of studying the neural basis of learning is that nervous systems are so complex. For example, you may have heard that the human brain contains around 100 billion neurons, or nerve cells. Well, it turns out that the latest estimates are closer to 86 billion, but we don't need to be too picky. The point is that there are a lot. And since neurons tend to make about 1,000 connections each, the total number of connections is somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 trillion. Now, to put that number in perspective, there are probably more neural connections in your brain than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So put simply, your brain is extremely complex. And while that's great for you, and it allows you to be so flexible and intelligent in your behavior, it kind of makes it tough for neuroscientists who want to figure out how this extremely complicated organ actually works, and in particular, how it learns. Well, one strategy that many neuroscientists adopt is to study other organisms that have much simpler nervous systems. The hope is that what we learn from studying them might provide insight into how the human brain works. And it turns out that it often does. Enter the sea snail aplysia. This creature exhibits many of the simple implicit learning mechanisms that we've talked about in this course. For example, it exhibits habituation to being touched. Initially, it quickly withdraws its gill when it's touched. But if it's touched repeatedly and gently, it eventually learns to ignore the touch and it stops withdrawing its gill. It also exhibits a simple form of sensitization in which its gill withdrawal reflex actually gets stronger over time under the right circumstances. Scientists have even demonstrated basic associative learning, like classical conditioning. But, whereas human beings have nearly 100 billion neurons, aplesia only has around 20,000. And only about 100 of those neurons are directly involved in the gill withdrawal reflex. Furthermore, the neurons in aplesia are big, and easy to identify compared with human neurons. So scientists know which neuron they're looking at and how it's connected to other neurons that they can also identify. The bottom line is that sea snails exhibit some of the same forms of implicit learning as human beings, but the neural mechanisms involved are much easier to study. And studying simple forms of implicit learning in the sea snail has led to some of the most important insights into the underlying neural mechanisms. For example, one of the most fundamental questions about the neural basis of learning is what changes in the brain when we learn? Is the newly learned information stored in new brain cells that grow in response to the learning? Or perhaps new connections are created between existing neurons? Is there a specific place in the brain that's critical for implicit learning, similar to the way the hippocampus and medial temporal lobes are critical for explicit learning? Eric Kandel and his colleagues at Columbia University started working on these kinds of questions by studying the gill withdrawal reflex in Aplysia, and those studies eventually led to the Nobel Prize in Physiology. They began by mapping out the exact neural circuit involved in this simple gill withdrawal response. And because the nerve cells in aplysia are so big and identifiable, they were able to stimulate and record from individual neurons to see if they were involved in this reflex response. And as they studied this reflexive response in sea snail after sea snail, they discovered that the circuit was always the same they could identify the same neurons in different animals, and the neurons were always connected in the same way. They even gave specific neurons names so that they could refer to them individually when thinking and talking about the circuit. And they could easily identify those cells and return to study them over and over, both before and after learning, even in different animals. So... How does this circuit change after learning? Well, first consider habituation, arguably the simplest form of learning. Aplesia has a gill that it uses for breathing, and it has a siphon that it uses to expel water. When the animal is at rest, the gill and siphon are often extended outside of the body. But if the siphon is gently touched... The animal will withdraw them in a kind of defensive reaction. That's the gill withdrawal reflex. But if you repeatedly touch the siphon and nothing bad happens to the animal, it eventually gets used to it and it stops withdrawing. That's habituation. And as we've seen, it's one of the very simplest forms of implicit learning. Kandel and his colleagues carefully examined the neural circuit of that gill withdrawal reflex, both before and after habituation, to try to figure out what had changed that might account for the change in behavior. And at first, they didn't see much. All the same neurons were there after learning as had been there before. No neurons had grown and no neurons had been removed. Furthermore, the number and location of connections between the neurons appeared to be unchanged. The neurons that had been connected before habituation were still connected after habituation. And there weren't any new connections that hadn't been there before. So why in the world did the snails behave any differently? Candell and his colleagues discovered that the neurons in the circuit reduced the strength of their signals, specifically they released less neurotransmitter than they did before habituation. You've probably heard of neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin before. These are chemicals that neurons use to communicate with each other. Essentially, when a neuron wants to send a signal to another neuron, it releases a bunch of neurotransmitter molecules in the synapse the very small space between one neuron and the next. The neurotransmitter molecules then move across the synapse and they bind to special receptor molecules on the next neuron and turn them on. And when those receptors get turned on, they might trigger the next neuron to fire itself and send a neurotransmitter signal to another neuron, and so on. And that's the way information gets sent through the neural circuits in your brain. Whether you're lifting your arm or reading a book or listening to a conversation or solving a problem, all your perceptions, decisions, and actions are based on neurons firing and triggering other neurons to fire. You can think of receptors kind of like the ignition on your car. And you can think of neurotransmitter molecules like car keys that fit in the ignition and start the car. Just as car keys fit in the ignition and then start the car, neurotransmitter molecules bind to receptors and turn the receptors on. Now, before habituation, touching the siphon leads a bunch of neurons to fire and release a lot of neurotransmitter molecules. First, sensory neurons in the siphon fire in response to the touch itself. These sensory neurons are connected to motor neurons that can withdraw the gill. And when the sensory neurons fire, they release a bunch of neurotransmitter molecules into these synapses. The neurotransmitter molecules bind to receptors on the motor neurons and turn them on. And that causes the motor neurons to start firing vigorously, and leads to the withdrawal of the gill. But Kandel and his colleagues found that after repeated gentle touching, the sensory neurons in the siphon started releasing less and less neurotransmitter. And as a result, the receptors on the motor neurons weren't turned on as much. And the gill withdrawal response got smaller and smaller. That was the neural basis of habituation, reduced neurotransmitter release. And similar findings have now been reported in many other species. Now, a key lesson to draw is that changing the strength of connections between neurons is a fundamental mechanism underlying learning in the brain. Habituation wasn't based on growing new neurons or on getting rid of existing neurons nor was it based on changing the wiring between the neurons. The same neural connections were present before and after learning. What changed was the strength of those connections. Specifically, the connections became weaker. And that was implemented by changing the amount of neurotransmitter that was released into the synapse. A second key lesson is that the learning occurred in the very same neural circuit that performed the gill withdrawal action. There wasn't a separate area in the snail's nervous system where the learning occurred or where the memory was stored. And that seems to be a general characteristic of implicit learning. Implicit learning occurs in the same neural circuits that control the behavior that's changing. So that's actually fairly different from explicit learning in which a specific region of the brain, namely the hippocampus, is dedicated to that function specifically. Now, it turns out that the snail's habituation to being touched usually only lasts a few minutes. So, if you wait 15 minutes and then touch the siphon again, then the snail will once again withdraw its gill, just like it used to before learning. But Candell and his colleagues found that if they kept touching the siphon repeatedly over the course of a few days, then the habituation would last much longer. In that case, they could touch the animal's siphon more than three weeks later, and it still wouldn't withdraw its gill very much. In other words, the animal had learned a long-term implicit memory. So, what's different at a neural level? What makes the memory last longer? Craig Bailey and Mary Chen at Columbia University investigated that question by carefully counting the number of active zones on neurons. That is, the specific regions at the end of the neurons where they made synaptic connections with other neurons. They did this both before and after habituation. And they found a profound structural change. After long-term habituation, the animals had fewer than half as many active zones as before habituation. Apparently, the animals had pruned away a lot of the synaptic connections supporting the gill withdrawal feedback. So, while short-term habituation depends on changing the amount of neurotransmitter being released from existing synapses, Long-term habituation seems to depend on pruning away synapses themselves, that is, changing the pattern of connectivity among the neurons. Okay, well, so far, we've learned a lot about the neural mechanisms underlying one type of non-associative implicit memory, namely habituation. But you may recall that habituation isn't the only kind of non-associative memory. What about sensitization? in which repeated exposure to a stimulus makes you respond more and more? Well, scientists also studied this kind of learning in aplesia. Although repeated gentle touching of the siphon leads to habituation, it turns out that repeated shocks lead to sensitization. That is, after being shocked repeatedly, the animal will exhibit a larger than normal gill withdrawal response if it's touched afterwards. Even if now there's no shock, it's as if the animal is now very wary of any kind of touch. Well, that's sensitization. And the very same neural mechanisms that underlie habituation also seem to be at work during sensitization, but in the opposite direction. Whereas short-term habituation leads to a decrease in neurotransmitter release, short-term sensitization leads to an increase in neurotransmitter release. And while long-term habituation is associated with a decrease in the number of synaptic connections, long-term sensitization is associated with an increase in the number of connections. So the same mechanisms are at work, but in opposite directions. Okay, now I'd like to turn to the neural mechanisms underlying associative learning like classical and instrumental conditioning? What was changing in the brains of Pavlov's dogs when they learned to associate the sound of experimenters with the reward of food? What was changing in the brains of Thorndike's cats when they got faster and faster at escaping his puzzle box and getting to eat some food? Well, you may remember that one of the key ideas to come out of studies on conditioning is the idea of reward prediction error. We tend to learn associations between stimuli and rewards, or between behaviors and rewards, when we fail to predict those rewards. For example, do you remember the phenomenon of blocking? If you've already learned an association between two stimuli, then that existing association can block the learning of other associations. For instance, We pointed out that if you've already learned an association between seeing a red light and hearing a fan, then you might not learn an association between a green light that starts coming on later that also predicts the fan. In that case, the green light does not become associated with the fan because the red light could already predict it. And as a result, there was no prediction error and no new learning. In one of the most exciting neuroscientific discoveries of the last 25 years, Wolfram Schultz, who was at the University of Freiburg at the time, found what now appears to be the neural basis of this kind of prediction error. He was studying neurons in a small part of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, or just VTA for short. The VTA is in what's called the midbrain, at the top of the brain stem. Now, Schultz had implanted electrodes in the VTA of some monkeys, and he was recording the activity of so-called dopamine neurons in that brain area while the monkeys were performing a learning task. They're called dopamine neurons because these neurons use the chemical neurotransmitter dopamine to send signals to other neurons. Now, the monkeys were performing a basic conditioning task, specifically If they pressed a lever after a light flashed, then they'd get a squirt of good-tasting juice. And the monkeys liked the juice, so it served as a reward. Now, this is a lot like Thorndike's Puzzle Box, in which cats had to learn to press a lever in order to escape from a box and get a reward. Likewise here, the monkeys had to learn to press a lever in order to get a reward. The big difference is that Schultz was recording neural activity in the VTA while the animals learned the task. So he could watch how VTA neurons behaved before and after learning. And what he found was very interesting. When the monkeys first started doing the task, Schultz noticed that the VTA neurons tended to fire when the monkey got a juice reward. As soon as the monkey got rewarded with juice, Schultz saw a big spike of neural activity as these VTA neurons fired and released dopamine. But once the monkeys figured out that they would get the juice as long as they pressed the lever when the light came on, then the VTA neurons stopped firing in response to the juice. Put simply, the VTA neurons only fired when the monkeys got a reward that they weren't expecting. As soon as they could predict that the juice was coming, then the VTA neurons no longer fired. Well, that's exactly what you would expect a reward prediction error to look like in the brain. These neurons fire a lot when they get a reward that they weren't expecting, and they don't fire when they get a reward that they were expecting. In other words, the neurons fire in response to a reward prediction error. Now, what do you think would happen if the monkeys were expecting a reward, but then they don't get it? Well, in that case, Schultz found that the BTA neurons were less active than normal. That is, they fired below their baseline firing rate. So, here we have a neural signal that corresponds to exactly the kind of reward prediction error that psychologists had proposed based purely on behavioral experiments. When there's no reward prediction error, VTA dopamine neurons fire at their standard baseline rate. When an unexpected reward shows up, meaning that there's more reward than predicted, then these neurons fire above baseline. And when an expected reward doesn't show up or there's less reward than predicted, then these neurons fire below baseline. But Schultz also found something else. After the monkeys had learned the task, the VTA dopamine neurons started firing in response to the light rather than the juice. And if you think about it, that's a lot like Pavlov's dogs. Initially, the dogs only salivated in response to the food reward, but after conditioning, they started salivating in response to a stimulus that predicted the reward, specifically the sound of the experimenters entering the room. Well, likewise, the VTA neurons in Schultz's experiment initially fired in response to the juice reward. But after conditioning, they started firing in response to the stimulus that predicted the juice, namely the flash of light. So, the midbrain dopamine system appears to play a critical role in many types of associative learning at least when animals need to associate stimuli or behaviors with some kind of reward, as they typically do in conditioning paradigms. But there's another neural mechanism that plays a critical role in associative learning, and it's critical for many other types of learning, too. That's long-term potentiation, or LTP for short. And that's what I'd like to spend the rest of this lecture discussing. In 1949 the great Canadian neuropsychologist Donald Hebb wrote a very influential book called The Organization of Behavior. In it, he laid out a theory that tried to connect what psychologists knew about behavior with what neuroscientists knew about the brain. Now, at the time, many psychologists didn't believe that neuroscience would be able to shed much light on psychological processes. So Hebb was going out on a limb, and obviously, both psychology and neuroscience have come a long way since 1949, so the information that Hebb had to work with was very limited. Nevertheless, some of the ideas that Hebb proposed in that book continue to have a dramatic impact to this day. In particular, he proposed an idea that has come to be known as Hebbian learning, have described the idea this way. When an axon of cell A is near enough to excite a cell B and repeatedly and persistently takes part in firing it, some growth process or metabolic change takes place in one or both cells such that A's efficiency, as one of the cells firing B, is increased. To put it a little more simply, neurons that fire together wire together. If the activity of one neuron repeatedly leads to the firing of another neuron, then the synaptic connection between them will get stronger. Over 20 years after Hebb originally proposed this idea, Tim Bliss and Terje Lomo discovered empirical evidence that Hebb was right. Specifically, They found that if they artificially stimulated a neural circuit with high-frequency electrical activity, the strength of the synaptic connections in that pathway got stronger. Bliss and Lomo used the term potentiated instead of strengthened, but it's the same idea. Sending high-frequency electrical activity through the circuit potentiated or strengthened the synaptic connections in that circuit. Furthermore, they found that the potentiation of those synaptic connections lasted for days or even weeks. And so they referred to the phenomenon as long-term potentiation, or LTP. Now, a few years later, Gary Lynch and his colleagues at the University of California, Irvine, demonstrated that it was also possible to induce the long-term depression of synaptic connections. In that case, the synaptic connections get weaker rather than stronger. And not to be outdone by LTP, long-term depression was quickly given the acronym LTD. Now, there are a number of reasons to think that LTP and LTD may play a role in long-term associations. First of all, Both phenomena typically depend on both the neuron sending the signal and on the neuron receiving the signal. They therefore seem like natural mechanisms to form an association, just as Hebb had proposed in 1949. Second, LTP and LTD happen quickly. One burst of appropriate electrical activity can change the strength of a synapse. It's therefore possible that LTP and LTD could play a role in the kind of fast associative learning that humans do all the time, like remembering an association between your car and where you parked it. And third, LTP and LTD last for a long time, just like our associative memories can last for hours or days or even longer. So can the potentiation and depression of synaptic connections after electrical stimulation. And for all of these reasons, it seems likely that LTP and LTD play an important role in long-term associative learning. But, of course, just because artificial stimulation leads to synaptic changes, that doesn't necessarily mean that these mechanisms play a role in real-life learning. To test that hypothesis, Richard Morris and his colleagues at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland tested rats' ability to learn before and after being injected with a drug that blocks LTP. Specifically, the rats had to perform the Morris water maze task that we talked about in Lecture 6. Now, as you may recall, this task involves learning where a hidden platform is in a pool of opaque water. Normally, rats swim around until they stumble upon the platform, but then quickly learn its location, and they swim straight for it when they're put back in the pool. But after being injected with the LTP-blocking drug, the rats were significantly impaired at learning the platform's location, and that suggests that LTP is playing a role in real-world learning. Now, LTP and LTD have been found in numerous parts of the brain but they've been most studied in the hippocampus. And you'll no doubt remember that the hippocampus is crucial for explicit learning. So here we have some basic neural mechanisms that could very well play a role in both implicit and explicit learning. Now, together, these studies in sea snails, in rats, in monkeys, and in humans are beginning to shed light on the actual neural mechanisms that allow us to learn and remember. And one crucial lesson is that learning is mediated by the strengthening and weakening of synaptic connections between neurons in the brain, both by changing the amount of neurotransmitter being released and by pruning or adding synaptic connections. We also learned that associative learning often depends on assessing the accuracy of our predictions about reward. And we saw that the midbrain dopamine system plays a crucial role in those computations. Finally, the studies of LTP and LTD demonstrate that the synaptic changes underlying learning can happen very quickly and can last a long time. And those are just the properties we would expect to see in neural mechanisms that support long-term learning. Well, in the next two lectures, I want to get back to practical implications of what we've been learning. Now that we've got a grasp of how implicit learning works, both at a psychological and neural level, what are some of the lessons that we can learn? For example, suppose you want to learn a new skill like playing the piano or speaking a language or hitting a golf ball. Is there anything that the science of learning has to say that might help us learn more efficiently and effectively? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. And that's what we'll talk about in our next lecture.